Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, November 26th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, November 28th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? Uh, it's the day after Thanksgiving, and I'm doing all right, but I've also been better. Um, the news about the new variant is... Uh, making me, I don't know, making me feel creepy. things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the same. Hoping that the new year brings some better changes. Um, cause you know, 2021 wasn't that much better than 2020 in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. It was a weird in between space, right? I definitely feel like I didn't really know what to expect, but I did expect I wanted more. I'm still waiting for like the aha moment, but Mm -hmm, I feel that. Yeah. I hope something great Mm -hmm. comes soon. So yeah, I'm definitely going to vision board for next year (laughs) and hope to manifest a better year for the world. All right. So on the docket for today's episode, our local news story is about Coney Island's wood boardwalk to be replaced by recycled plastic. Um, The verdict of the Ahmad Aubrey case will also for our international story be talking about the power struggle over cobalt for clean energy and some good news about the Thames in London and how it is no longer considered biologically dead. So we're going to go ahead and kick off our local news, our story with the local news segment. Jasmine, you're up. Uh, So this is a story that um, I learned a few things about the boardwalk that I didn't know before um, that I wasn't aware of. Um, And it is one of those rare things where I'm like, you know, I can genuinely see um, several sides of the issue. So the title of the article is NYC to replace entirety of Coney Island's wood boardwalk with recycled plastic. Uh, this is from the Gothamist and was written by Jake Offenharts on November the 24th. City officials are planning to replace the full length of Coney Island's hardwood boardwalk with recycled plastic decking the latest expansion of a sustainability initiative that has set off backlash among local residents. In a brief press release last week, the de Blasio administration announced that $114 million has been set aside for a phased reconstruction of the famed 2.7-mile boardwalk. As part of the overhaul, the Parks Department later confirmed to WNYC The Gothamist all of the boardwalk's classic wood planks are set to be replaced with synthetic material. The tentative plan is to reconstruct the entirety of the boardwalk by installing new concrete structural elements, new recycled plastic lumber decking, as well as topside railings and furnishings, says, said Megan Lalore, a spokesperson for the Parks Department. The scope and design of the project are still being worked out, Lalore added and decisions about materials have not yet been finalized. But the prospect of a full teardown of the wood planks has enraged some residents who liken the move to the desecration of a historic site. The project would also mark the city's most ambitious step to date in fulfilling a pledge made by both the Bloomberg and de Blasio administrations to reduce the use of tropical hardwoods. The city's reliance on the rainforest source timber, also found on benches, the Brooklyn Bridge Promenade, and subway track ties, has made New York one of the world's leading consumers of endangered hardwood, 
according to a 2008 report prepared by Bloomberg's Office of Long-Term Planning and Stability. Past attempts to install plastic and concrete in similar sections of the Coney Island boardwalk have inspired fierce protests from some Brooklynites. Among the past opponents is Mayor-elect Eric Adams, who will have ultimate say over the Coney Island redesign. At a pro-Wood rally in 2015, the Brooklyn Borough president vowed to fight any attempt to overhaul the boardwalk. Uh, And now I'm jumping ahead a little bit. The Coney Island boardwalk's planks are sourced from a Brazilian tree known as Ipe. I-P-E, and then E has a circumflex accent over it. I'm not sure how to pronounce it in Portuguese. A heavily durable and rot-resistant wood whose extraction has contributed to the deforestation of the Amazon. The price of Ipe has also increased significantly in recent years. Defenders of a hardwood boardwalk see the Parks Department decision as economic and practical. Coney Island Councilmember Mark Traeger said he has requested the de Blasio administration identify other hardwoods, either domestically or sustainably sourced from South America, but was brushed off. The de Blasio administration has said that no supply exists, but we found out later that was not the case, Traeger said. I don't think it's contradictory to push for resiliency in the historic nature of the boardwalk. The privately funded Highline stopped using Ipe in 2011. When the privately funded Highline stopped using Ipe in 2011, they switched to another tropical wood, a reclaimed teak from the industrial buildings of Southeast Asia. By comparison, the sections of the Rockaway boardwalk that were destroyed by Superstorm Sandy were rebuilt with recycled plastic and concrete. In a presentation about removing a section of wood on the Brighton Beach stretch, the Parks Department said they had evaluated the costs and life cycle of various domestic and tropical hardwoods before concluding that each had significant drawbacks compared to plastic and textured concrete. Um, So for the sake of time, I'm going to um, end there, but you can read the rest of the article on The Gothamist. The title again is NYC to replace entirety of Coney Island's wood boardwalk with recycled plastic. Um, And just towards the end, they do talk to some um, residents of the area who feel like it's been left to that the boardwalk hasn't been getting the attention it needs, like as far as a carpenter the resources to keep it up, you know, they feel like they've been ignored for a really long time. And now this is coming along and happening without um, the residents wanting it to happen. Wow, that's different. Um, I know the people who are truly vested in, in Coney Island for, you know, live there their whole lives and everything like that, probably can't even imagine this happening. But it's, it kind of seems like it's a good thing no yeah that it's, it's being used recyclable plastic i mean recycled plastic mm-hmm. and concrete that's a good it's thing de- right it's definitely interesting i i think you're right reese that it's like a good thing obviously that they're not sourcing their wood from uh something that's doing you know, contributing to climate change and like deforestation um but like 
microplastics and plastic leaching yeah. is also bad for the environment. <laughs> I was just I was thinking the same thing and yeah. also the part that I didn't read that I skipped over some of the residents were also mentioning and I agree with this. They're like that plastic like when it gets wet and stuff. Yeah. It's very dangerous, you know, like it's yep. it's very slippery, you know, so wet I and definitely- hot. It's wet, hot. It's also, I think, it's a lot uglier. But you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. there were there were like real safety issues that yeah. they brought up, like especially if you use it regularly, mm-hmm. um, that it could be dangerous. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I, and it's yeah, like I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a different issue than climate change uh, in in some ways, but it's still an environmental issue for sure. And like, a, a, you know, relying on so much plastic directly right. at the ocean. <laughs> and I like, really don't like that. Yeah, I really don't like it either. And I think, you know, obviously, like uh, emotionally, you know, oh, like replacing the historic wood with plastic is like really lame. So there's that, you know, feels lame. But then the other issues like the environmental issue is more concerning, right? Like if it was if it was all good and just ugly, like there was no like necessarily environmental downside i'd i'd probably suck it up but i think um yeah that's definitely concerning to me yeah i don't understand why they can't find like there there weren't really reasons listed in the article as to what the other drawbacks were for the more sustainable mm-hmm. wood but like to your point about plastic i really i've been thinking about it a lot especially mm-hmm. because of how much we recycle isn't actually recycle and Mm -hmm. just that it's it doesn't go away like Mm -hmm. and there's so many things like whether it's like oh it's not fur it's vegan fur it's like no it's Mm -hmm. plastic Mm -hmm. you know it's like I think sometimes people like they Mm -hmm. completely are so like nothing died making this but it's like I I don't want something to die necessarily like I'm not like a monster mm-hmm. but also there's something to be said about using something that is organic that is going yeah. to die anyway that's going to dissolve back into the ecosystem naturally like whenever yeah. you have all this plastic stuff it's like okay yeah you didn't kill a tree or you didn't kill an mm-hmm. animal but like you are putting more like chemical shit into the a- atmosphere mm-hmm it sort of reminds me, this is sort it's like kind of a non sequitur, but I think it's, it reminds me of, uh, remember the movie Uptown Girl? I think it was called with Brittany Murphy and, um, and Dakota Fanning. Um, I did not watch it, but I know it. I you know before. it there was just this one scene that I don't really remember most of the movie, but there's this one scene where Dakota fan, like they're trying to clean up in the kitchen or something. And Dakota Fanning is like, use a paper towel. Like Brittany Murphy's trying to use a, a reusable dishcloth. And Dakota Fanning was telling her, like, that's gross and it holds all these germs. We have to use paper towels. And Brittany Murphy was mad because it's like so much waste when you use the paper towels. But it's sort of like it kind of reminds me of that where you kind you can see both sides of the issue. And, and again, I guess like here it's slightly different because there's alternative like I guess there's alternatives in all sides. But like, you know, obviously destroying the rainforest, bad um, deforestation, bad um, plastics, also bad. Right. So like, you know. And in that case, it's like paper towel waste, bad, but like, you know, having a dirt, like, like not actually getting all the germs away when you're washing stuff because, you know, you're not like, you can't. (laughs) Right. (laughs) With a reusable thing. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Yeah. And I I know there's a, there's a lot of like greenwashing or think where people, I guess they might have a more surface level understanding 
of um, environmental issues. Like, I, I don't know, maybe that sounds mean, but it's just like, it's very easy to be like, oh, look, like this is sustainable because mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, they don't, a lot of people just don't think beyond that or like, because something is labeled as being sustainable or environmentally mm-hmm. friendly, people are like, okay, yeah. And it makes them feel better. But then if you dig yeah. a little deeper, it's really covering up like some other, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. That's like just as bad or like even yeah. with food sometimes, like I'm, I'm personally not a vegetarian or a vegan, mm-hmm. but there's definitely some people that I think um, they are and they overstep a little bit, like, especially like talking down about like indigenous mm-hmm. ways of like eating meat and stuff like that. Like it's all, and it's like, you know, but mm-hmm. the way we get a lot of our plant food and stuff is also very, like there's people that are hurt by that, you know, like mm-hmm. farm workers or some of these items that like, okay, it's not an animal product, but like how many tons of water or whatever were used to produce like this thing mm-hmm. to be like an alternative to me, you know, it's like, it's a lot yeah. more complex than I think um, yeah. the messaging makes it seem, you know, cause even this, it was like, oh, it's not wood. It's great. Right. It's like, but where's the plastic going to go? It's just going to sit there forever. Yeah, sometimes I wonder, um, the people who make the decisions about what type of materials to use in this place, you know, you've obviously done some research to make the selection that you did. Why not go all out and get the most, the best option? Like, what would be the reason to have shortcuts for things like this? Um, If you have access to funding and information, Mm -hmm. you know, I I just wonder about that sometimes because it seems like you would make the right decision if you have an opportunity to. I, I also wonder if if who went into making this specific decision and I, I wonder if it was exclusively um, an environmental choice. I doubt, you know, like recycled plastic. I And part of me wonders like what sort of like, was there a bidding process and like, is there what like a financial motivation behind it? Yeah. Like, is, is there another motivation? And, you know, I don't know if we'd ever get an answer. Like how much research have they actually done? How far along in the process have they gotten before we even find out about it? Because there's mm-hmm. a lot of, yeah, there, there's maybe contractors who are bidding and like have, you know, things like that right. or like resourcers who are like, you know, here are our rates, stuff like that. I don't know, yeah. though. Well, definitely interesting and things to consider. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Yeah. And watch the Warriors on Pluto TV, the classic Coney Island based film. Yes, my favorite. Nice. I love that. I'm going to check it out myself. I've never seen it. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and hop into our first music break of the day before hopping into our national news story. This track is called Five Feet Tall, and it's by Blackbird. We'll be right back. Torch my heart, burn my soul. Box of cinders, five feet tall. Truth be told, I say, I love you dead or alive, from the robin's nest, the branches fall, and I Feet tall. 
Touch my heart, burn my soul. Box of cinders, five feet tall. It was good. Fuck me straight to my You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we will hop right into our national news story. Um, So this story comes from a New York Times article. The author of the article is Jack Healy and Tariro Moeze. And it was from November 24th. The title is, It's Good to See Racism Lose. Guilty Verdicts Are Hailed in the Aubrey Case. From the moment the first guilty verdict was uttered inside the Georgia courtroom, a cascade of tears and shouts of vindication coursed across the country. Black parents called their children weeping, activists choked up, embarrassing what they called a rare instance of justice. In a country whose carvernous divides over race, guns, and vigilante violence have been on display recently in courtrooms from Kenosha to Charlottesville to Brunswick, The guilty verdict on Wednesday against three white men who pursued and killed Ahmaud Arbery were hailed by political leaders and many Americans across the political spectrum. 
Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia, a Republican, said he hoped the verdict would help the country move forward down a path of healing and reconciliation. President Biden said the verdict showed that the justice system is doing its job. But said Mr. Arbery's murder and the chilling videotape that recorded it were a measure of the country's persistent racial inequalities. The widespread exclamations of support for the jury's verdict over what some activists called a 21st century lynching stood in stark contrast to the deeply polarized response to the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, the white 18-year-old who fatally shot two people during the unrest in Kenosha following a police shooting of a black man last year. Many conservatives embraced Mr. Rittenhouse's acquittal last week as a victory of self-defense and gun rights, while liberals worried it would encourage armed vigilantism as a response to racial protests. The Kyle Rittenhouse verdict is an Ameri- is the America I expect. The Aubrey verdict is the America I fight for, said Reverend Lenny Duncan, 43, a black pastor in Portland, Oregon, who attended many of the demonstrations that roared through the city last year after the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other black Americans. The conviction of all three defendants charged in Mr. Aubrey's killing in February of 2020, Travis McMichael, who's 35, his father Gregory McMichael, who's 65, and their neighbor, William Bryant, 52, drew few rebukes or protests. The lawyers for Travis McMichael told reporters that they respected the jury's decision but planned to appeal the verdict, which they described as disappointing and sad. The men also face federal hate crime charges and are expected to stand trial on them in February. The verdict came as a relief to some Black Americans who had watched the trial with sadness and dread. Many had urgently hoped for a guilty verdict, but worried that the overwhelmingly white jury would side with defense lawyers who portrayed the three white defendants as neighbors worried about a rash of crimes in their neighborhood when they took off in pursuit of Mr. Aubrey as he ran in the street. Thank God for this verdict today, said Warren Stewart Jr., a black clergyman and political activist in Phoenix. I started calling a few friends and they're crying on the phone. It's bittersweet having two black sons. This is scary. This is real life for us. Mr. Stewart's 18-year-old son, Micaiah, had been paying rapt attention to the trial, and the family tried to balance its hopes and prayers for a guilty verdict against the long history of high-profile killings of Black men and women that have been declared justified by the legal system. Some Black Americans said that the trial had posed to make or break test have posed a make or break test for the frayed trust in the legal system. They said the video showing how an unarmed black man had been chased, cornered, and shot had left room for doubt in their minds that Mr. Arbery's breath was a murder. Sorry, guys. We look forward to the day when it's not a question when a person is lynched by a racist that is that it is murder, said Hawk Newsom, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Greener New York, who called the guilty verdict a partial victory. In Atlanta, Chris Stewart, a lawyer who had represent a lawyer who represented several black families of people killed by white police officers, fought back tears as he reflected on this verdict in Georgia. Um, it's good to see racism lose, said Mr. Stewart whose clients have included a family of Walter Scott, a 50-year-old black man who was shot in the back in 2015 by a South Carolina police officer. The case will be remembered for many years, and you can't overstate how big this is. So I'm going to stop right there. The article is a couple more testimonies from different people, but they're basically um, talking about the comparison of just a couple days before that when the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict had been announced as opposed to what's happened here 
um, in the Maude Aubrey case. And to be quite honest, I mean, I'm definitely happy that justice was served. Um, I was not expecting anything because I've grown kind of numb to these situations, unfortunately. Don't want to get my hopes up. But I mean, I do think this is definitely a good um, a good feeling for people all over this country who were really affected by this death and people who obviously are used to not having justice for when their family members are murdered either by state violence or racism. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy for um, Ahmad's family. I'm sure that they're somewhat relieved that these people didn't get off. Um, I know that they're appealing. Um, but when these types of things happen, I guess in my mind, I always think of that ex- expression that the exception makes the rule. It's like you you can be surprised by a verdict like that because we know that so often it goes the other way. And then that's, you know, that's indicative of the problem that the justice system just because sometimes it might have the outcome that um, many people are hoping for, that doesn't mean that it's actually just or that it's actually working. And sometimes um, when these things happen, it can sort of give people leeway to be like, oh, yeah, like this was definitely a case where they should have gone to jail. But then someone like Rittenhouse, they'll make an excuse for, you know, because if they can find an example where they're okay with, you know, the white vigilantes who killed a black man um, being put away. It's like all the other cases that might not be as um, clear cut or extreme, they're still like, yeah, but there's enough like doubt, blah, 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 or like a reason why, like he shouldn't have been in that area. Um, I'm not sure if I'm being clear, but yeah, it's like, I'm happy for his family for sure. and glad it didn't go uh, the other way, but I don't really feel the sense of like, oh, this is like a good sign of things to come. Right. Or There's like no, that like, the system works or whatever. Like, I don't feel yeah. that way. Yeah. that w- I was going to ask you guys, Arisa at one point mentioned that um, from the article she was reading was calling this like a make or break moment. Do you guys agree with that for this particular case? In my, like, you know, I think when I think of a make or break in my mind and, un, you know, unrelated to, to shooting of unarmed people of color, but like, you know, like Sandy Hook, for example, in my mind was a make or break where like, I don't, I don't think we'll ever pass gun legislation in this country because if that didn't get it done, nothing will. Like, do you guys see like this as a make or break? What was it a make or break for you guys? No, it wasn't for me because, um, you know, we could argue that it was obviously clear on camera, you know, what was happening here. Um, if you watch any of the trial, you know, when they were on the stand, I'm not sure exactly which one it was, but one of the questions was, did you feel that he posed a threat to you? And the guy was clearly like, no, you know, he, he was honest about it. Um, I guess that's honest. So I don't think this is a make or break because it kind of just I mean, if obviously if the verdict was something other than this, there would definitely be, I believe, rioting and people in the streets uh, protesting about this case. But I don't think this set a precedent, if that's what you're meaning. I don't think it's, you know, it's one of those things that happened Mm -hmm. on the brace of something else happening. You know what I'm saying? And I hate to Mm -hmm. think about it like that, that, that these, you know, verdicts are connected. But one, it's easy to question if they are. Because I, I definitely feel also, 
you know, the fact that they weren't law enforcement officers might have had something to do with it, too. You never can tell. But I don't think that for sure. Um, what I would say is, like, I, I understand the framing of it as a make or break issue in the sense of people who want to do bad shit, like, they do have, um, they will look at who gets off for certain things and who's punished for certain things and maybe either be emboldened or feel like, oh, shit, like, maybe I shouldn't. So I could see why um, they someone might frame it as, like, a make-or-break thing because these were people who um, were straight-up, like, white racist vigilantes that went out of their way to hunt him down for no reason. Like, he was minding his business. So I could see why you would say, like, if this verdict goes to not guilty there will be a lot of people who want to do that same thing who will feel vindicated and more emboldened to go out and do it tomorrow. But, you know, that's not to say that, you know, if they're, if you're determined to do that type of thing, that it won't happen anyway, but I could definitely see why um, it might be more of an explosion or something that's even worse. Um, and I think you can see that with the way the Rittenhouse verdict has been responded to um, in like far right, wing media and you know with him being on Tucker Carlson it's like I think that's what they mean it's like that this could have been a similar type of a thing where if the verdict goes to let them go then they become like these hero people the way George Zimmerman was of like this these icons of like this is what we want to do to random black people as well so they were hoping for it to not go that way to not have like another example of someone who got off very good point um and i could see that comparison but you know i definitely noticed that that it really affected the black community this verdict i know a lot of um, people that i know um express their sentiments you know some bittersweet on social media but for you know young people all over this country that have the fear of racist attacks it was definitely a day for us to acknowledge um, that some justice was seen. So yeah, we're going to go ahead and take our next break. And before we get into our world news story, um, the next song is called Ted Al and it is by Masego featuring FKG. We'll be right back. Things so beautiful 
She just hit my heart, oh. Full force and she got me like. I be like. Why you so fine? Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. 
Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Emily up with our world news story. Take it away. So uh, this story comes from a November 20th New York Times article by Dion Sarsi, or Searcy, uh, Michael Forsyth, and Eric Lip- Lipshin, or Lipton, uh, titled A Power Struggle Over Cobalt Rattles the Clean Energy Revolution. Uh, the quest for Congo's cobalt, which is vital for electric vehicles and the worldwide push against climate change, is caught up in an international cycle of exploitation, greed, and gamesmanship. The article explains, quote, Democratic Republic of Congo, just up a red dirt road across an expanse of tall, dew-soaked weeds, bulldozers are hollowing out a yawning new canyon that is central to the world's urgent race against global warming. For more than a decade, the vast expanse of untouched land was controlled by an American company. Now a Chinese mining conglomerate has bought it and is racing to retrieve its buried treasure, millions of tons of cobalt. At 73, Kaya Hil Mengi has lived there has lived here long enough to predict the path ahead. Once the blasting starts, the walls of mud brick homes will crack. Chemicals will seep into the river where women do laundry and dishes and women do laundry and dishes while worrying about hippo attacks. Soon a manager from the mine will announce that everyone needs to be relocated. We know our ground is rich, said Mr. Mengi, a village chief who also knows residents will share little of the mine's wealth. This wooded stretch of Southeast Democratic Republic of Congo, called Kisanfu, holds one of the largest and purest untapped reserves of cobalt in the world. The gray metal, typically extracted from copper deposits, has historically been of secondary interest to miners. But demand is set to explode worldwide because it is used in electric car batteries, helping them run longer without a charge. Outsiders discovering and exploiting the natural resources of this impoverished Central African country are following a tired colonial era pattern. The United States turned to Congo for uranium to help build the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then spent decades and billions of dollars seeking to protect its mining interests here. Now with more than two-thirds of the world's cobalt production coming from Congo, The country is once again taking center stage as major automakers commit to battling climate change by transitioning from gasoline-burning vehicles to battery-powered ones. The new automobiles rely on a host of minerals and metals often not abundant in the United States or the oil-rich Middle East, which sustained the last energy era. But the quest for Congo's cobalt has demonstrated how the clean energy revolution— meant to save the planet from perilously warming temperatures in an age of enlightened self-interest, is caught in a familiar cycle of exploitation, greed, and gamesmanship that often puts narrow national aspirations above all else, an an investigation by the New York Times found. The Times dispatched reporters across three continents drawn into the competition for cobalt, a relatively obscure raw material that along with lithium, nickel, and graphite has gained exceptional value in a world trying to set fossil fuels aside. More than 100 interviews and thousands of pages of documents show that the race for cobalt has set off a power struggle in Congo, a storehouse of these increasingly prized resources, and lured foreigners intent on dominating the next epoch in global energy. Epoch in global energy. Uh, In particular, a rivalry between China and the United States have far-reaching implications for the shared goal of safeguarding the earth. 
at least here in Congo, China is so far winning that contest with both the Obama and Trump administrations having stood idly by as a company backed by the Chinese government bought two of the country's biggest, um, two of the country's largest cobalt deposits over the past five years. Quote, already tensions over minerals and metals are rattling the electric vehicle market. Deadly rioting in July near a port in South Africa, where much of Congo's cobalt is exported to China and elsewhere, caused a global jump in the metals prices, a surge that only worsened through the rest of the year. Last month, the mining industry's leading forecaster said the rise, the rising cost of raw materials was likely to drive up battery costs for the first time in years, threatening to disrupt automakers' plans to attract customers with competitively priced electric cars. Jim Fairley, Ford's chief executive, said the mineral supply crunch needed to be confronted. We have to solve these things, he said in an event in September, and we don't have much time. Automakers like Ford are spending billions of dollars to build their own battery plants in the United States and are rushing to curb the need for newly mined cobalt by developing lithium iron phosphate substitutes or turning to recycling. As a result, a Ford spokeswoman said, we do not see cobalt as a constraining issue. Quote, the frenzy for Congo's cobalt has attracted an international cast of opportunists, luminaries, and shadowy characters eager to benefit. At one point, it also drew a Chinese-based private equity firm that Hunter Biden helped found, and that was later scrutinized in the 2020 presidential campaign. At the same time, Chinese companies are running into new headwinds from Congo's government, according to documents obtained by the, to- obtained by the Times and in interviews with current and former senior U.S. officials. Congolese officials are carrying out a broad review of past mining contracts, work they are doing with financial help from the American government as part of its broader anti-corruption effort. They're examining whether companies are fulfilling their contractual obligations, including a 2008 commitment from China to deliver billions of dollars worth of new roads, bridges, power plants, and other infrastructure. Uh, And to close, President Felix uh, Chisekedi, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong, of Congo is quoted as saying, "Uh, we have an amazing potential for renewable energy, be it through our strategic metals or through our rivers, he said, referring to both mining and hydroelectric power. Our idea is how can we put this amazing resource at the disposal of the world, but while making sure that it first benefits Congolese and it benefits Africans. Uh, yeah, so that is the story. Um, the article is a lot longer. It really, really, it's like almost twice. <laughs> it's like double that length and the second half really, really dives into like what it's like on the ground as, as a lot of the, the mines move to Chinese control. And they actually talk, it's, it's interesting. They talk a lot about like worker safety and how that's changed. Um, and how Americans were like really, really uh, into worker safety and how that sort of shifted. Um, so if you're interested in that, go ahead and, uh, dive into that article (laughs) on the times in the New York times. Wow. Thanks for that overview. Um, definitely what the president said, right? So that, um, I think a lot of times when resources are shared or other countries kind of, um, partner, if you will, I think, you know, that's the way they like to paint it. Um, there's a tendency to take over resources and not to distribute the wealth the way that it was originally designed to be. So that's definitely of concern. Um, but yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't um, up on cobalt itself. And I know there's a couple of different resources that come out of the Congo. They had, um, they've always kind of dealt with sort of exportation of the resources within their country. So definitely interesting to watch the race. 
Yeah, I think it's um, it's the world, the world story and the local story kind of go together in a way because it brought, while listening to you, it brought up a lot of the same stuff I was saying and thinking earlier mm-hmm. how, you know, like sometimes there's there's such a disconnect between a product and like what it took for the product to be developed or how it even got here. You know, and there's, you know, a lot of talk about electric cars and everything, but, you know, what about the people that have to work in the mines? You know, what is happening as far as the extraction of the resources to make electric cars possible, as well as other types of technology that are touted as being like, oh, this is going to be the solution or this is going to help. So, yeah, I'm glad you talked about that story. Uh, yeah, you are 100% right. As I was reading it, I was getting, I was having like my brain was sort of like making those connections too, because it really is, um, you know, that good bad thing where it's like, okay, so to stop climate change, the world is, you know, we need cars still. So we're going to switch to green energy and that'll fix everything but then again yeah like where do we source these metals and and you know the part of the article where they were interviewing the local chief and he was saying that you know they know how this goes like once you know mining mining is dangerous and unhealthy for communities I think we've seen that um over and over um worldwide and how you know the local homes are going to probably get polluted from the mining they're doing and all of the, the work that goes into that so um you know, it's going to just on a micro level, it's going to be bad for the environment, if not on the macro level. And then also, yeah, it's that like, um, energy extraction thing. And, uh, while, you know, while obviously sticking with fossil fuels is not, (laughs) is not an option, you know, we do like, you could argue that we don't need to extract from another country because we can, you know, there's fracking in the U.S., but that obviously destroys local communities, too. So it's like it definitely yeah, is that like bad, bad thing. It definitely for me seems like um, it's like exporting an issue. It's the same thing with how a lot of plastics and things that people think are being recycled. They're just being dumped somewhere else. So it's like you're putting them into a receptacle and you don't have to see it anymore, and you think, oh, it's going to go and be remade into this, but how much of that stuff is just being dumped in another country and oftentimes like in a poorer country where it just piles up and piles up. So it's true. It's like um, we all know, especially as an American, like the history of coal mining here, how dangerous it is on a person, um, how badly the workers have been exploited, Uh, Well, I would hope most Americans are somewhat familiar with that. And it's like, okay, yes, we understand that that's bad, but it's kind of like recreating those same conditions on another continent where it's away from your vision or it's not a part of your community is still bad. It's still very bad, you know, so there has to be the political will and enough people behind thinking ways to like really overhaul the ways that we live. Cause I think sort of just trying to like replace something we already have with like a cleaner version of that is probably not going to fully work. Like the fact that that so much is so dependent on cars is really difficult. So just trying to be like, Oh, let's just do a different type of car. Seems like it will trade one set of problems for another set of problems or like intensify the, 
the burden on one specific demographic or certain demographics around the world so that other people in other places don't have to deal with um, the consequences as much. I think it's, um, I agree, definitely. I think from what I can see in the photos in the Times article, um, just like I think that comparison with with coal mining in the US, it it looks like it's a different um, landscape it doesn't look like they're going like underground in that sense. Like it looks like it's mostly above ground and there's like a lot of digging of pits. Um, again, I'm not an expert though. Um, but that's not to say that it isn't dangerous. I think it's, it's just dangerous in different ways. Like worker safety is definitely an issue. And yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. It's just like the same concept yeah. of like yeah. work, you're putting your body on the lines yep. to get this energy material thing but mm-hmm. what are the implications of it and I, I know in the Congo there's also a lot of issues with like children being forced mm. to do that type of work when clearly like they shouldn't have to mm. yeah and, and again too like in the U.S. you know I don't want to say at least but the coal mining was you know was for local use or for American you know like I, I mean, I guess like it is, it's always an extraction in the sense where a company is taking it and making money off of it and you're getting paid minimal, you know, you're doing back like very, like dangerous labor for probably not enough compensation. Um, but it must be even more, I can only imagine it being even more of, I don't know if it's an emotional toll or, you know, when you're doing it for a company that's taking it and, and like leaving the country with it, you know, and like, you're, you're not going to see any of the benefits Right. Um, yeah. Yourself. Yeah. Outsourcing definitely has many layers to it. Um, thank you so much for that story. Very interesting. And then finally, Emily, what do you have for us for good news? All righty. So uh, this story comes from a November 10th BBC article titled River Thames, Sharks and Seahorses Found Living in Waterway. Uh, Quote, the State of the Thames report, led by the Zoological Society of London, or the ZSL, highlights changes since the river was declared biologically dead in 1957. The river has seen an increase in its range of birds, marine mammals, and natural habitats since the 1990s. Uh, Quote, the report said shark species, including tape, starry smooth hound, and spur dog live in the Thames and that there are more than 100 species of fish in the 215-mile-long river. Uh, It added short-term trends revealed water quality has improved with dissolved oxygen concentrations showing, showing an increase from 2007 to 2020. Quote, however, a number of fish species found in the tidal areas of the Thames have showed a slight decline, experts found. Conservation scientists said further research was needed to determine the cause. Climate change has increased the temperature of London's waterway by 0.2 Celsius a year, the study said. The rising temperature was meant, has meant water levels in the tidal Thames have increased since 1911, ZSL said. Uh, quote, Alison uh, Debney for ZSL said, Estuaries are one of our neglected and threatened ecosystems. They provide us with clean water, protection from flooding, and are an important nursery for fish and other wildlife. The Thames estuary and its associated blue carbon habitats are critically important in our fight to mitigate climate change and build a strong and resilient future for for nature and people. This report has enabled us to really look at how far the Thames has come on its journey to recovery since it was declared biologically dead and in some cases set baselines to build from in the future. So yeah, um, just a, uh, 
a shorter story. And I've seen this reprinted in a lot of places, like really highlighting the fact that it's no longer biologically dead, um, which I think is like the bare minimum we can ask of our like environmental resources that we rely on. Um, but it's also like, it's, it's like the least we can ask for while also being like really exciting. Like that's really important, (laughs) you know? Exactly. The undead river. Right. Yeah. Like zombies. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Um, interesting. Awesome. I wondered how that compares to, you know, the Hudson is the Hudson a dead river. Yeah. Well that I, so I haven't heard much about, let me see actually, um, Hudson, environmental status i'm looking that up but um a few years ago i remember hearing like like more than a few years ago like we're talking five or six years ago like that they were seeing like whales or something for the first time like the hudson was recovering in a certain way but it was actually interesting because because there was more like bio- biological wildlife in it. It was actually okay. bad for like the infrastructure because it meant that the like, bacteria was like eating at like, you know, wood pylons and whatever, um, which wow. I thought was pretty interesting. Right. Like a lot of like plus minus stories today, <laughs> it's the I, you know? Yeah. Duality of mankind. It like is. You know, there's a very push deeply the philosophical pole. there. Yeah. Like, I was thinking, um, maybe I'm wrong, but like I had mentioned something about my cat and I think a person, someone I know, like kind of made a comment where I was like, well, is this someone who like doesn't agree in the concept of pets? Because like, I have come up, come mm. across people like that who are like, it's unethical to have like a Ooh. pet cat, for example. And it's like, it is like, like most things in the world that like, you can argue like on the one hand that, okay, perhaps the cat wants to be free. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, mm-hmm. cats, when they live outdoors, like they are responsible for like the extinction of a lot of little species. Cause you know, mm-hmm. they just kill stuff just to kill it. Or like mm-hmm. they'll have so many kittens in such a short time that it completely overwhelms like the local community, you know? So there's always yeah. like a push and pull between Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not as cut and dry as people like to think of it. A lot of these environmental and ecological decisions, yeah, mm-hmm. um, they're not strictly point. black and white. Or like, there's like the long, like something that you're like, even poaching or like certain things where mm-hmm. it's like this is bad for the environment, and it's like okay, but you got to explain that to the local people that like live and die by using this as their form of income. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, so what is what are the alternatives for them? Like, it's always. Right. It's never as simple as it seems on the surface. No. And there was actually, there was a really interesting um, radio lab episode about like rhino hunting, like six years, five, six years ago. I don't know if you guys listened to it. I, I think I have friends that like we were talking about it recently. I may but, have heard it. Yeah. It sounds familiar. Yeah. But it was like, it was that thing where not everything's black and white, where it's like, there were some like pretty good arguments for why they should be allowed, like the, uh, this group of people should be allowed to hunt every once in a while like a rhino an endangered species it was really interesting and i don't have any of the arguments on my in hand which is <laughs> very interesting radio but i do recommend um people go look for that rhino radio lab episode i'm looking up the name now the, i think it's called the rhino hunter yeah i think i may have listened to that and mm-hmm. i've heard you know there's people that you know because of bambi and like also other reasons like might be right. really against stuff like hunting and it's like if we were to hunt like certain like 
animals that are just occur in nature and are indigenous to this country and like replace that in like the food chain for like the meat that we eat as opposed to like factory farming or mm-hmm. having these big cattle rent that mm-hmm. would be that would be so much easier on the environment but there's mm-hmm. people that are like they have such a visceral reaction to the idea that you hunt something that mm-hmm. when you talk about like the ways that like you can have overpopulation of certain things that th- throws everything else out of whack you know, so you do, there's always like a balance you have to strike or like more than just one side of things you have to consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, with that, I think we've made it to the end of the episode. <laughs> thank you so mm-hmm. much, ladies, for your stories this week. And thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. I'm going to play you out with our final track of the day. It's KRS-One with Step Into My World. We'll see you next week. Happy Sunday. Bye, y'all. Bye. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.